Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. Hello and welcome to the 1202 Human Factors Podcast. Today we are going to be speaking about people or more specifically, people's well-being, with a particular focus on the digital side of things. The topic of people's well-being is something that is very popular, the idea that we should be looking after ourselves and understanding not only how to take care of ourselves physically, but also uh, mentally. There's no denying that one of the biggest impacts that have hit the scene recently is the internet and and basically people's connectedness um, using digital means. So the phrase that has come out quite a lot is digital well-being. So what I want to spend the ne- this next few minutes talking about is this idea about digital well-being, but also looking at the perceptions of digital well-being through the ages, looking at some concepts and differences about how different people ages approach and use digital tools and, and the internet and that type of thing. This is part of what I've been talking about in various articles and um, in webinars and things around smart cities and really about the fact that we should be spending more effort in understanding the people who are living in these smart cities and what we should, what we are providing to them. So this really is a trying to get a bit of an understanding about why the drive in smart cities is happening but also what things we need to maybe be thinking about when we look to providing services for the younger generation as well as the the more mature generations and why there is a difference in the way we need to approach them. This is on the background of of the Smart Cities Initiative, which a lot of local government and national government is hoping fundamentally will save a lot of money. A lot of local and national government uh, organisations are having to produce, I guess, the well-worn phrases of having to do more with less. They really see the the use of technology and digital innovation as one of the strong mechanisms to do that, so much so that they expect to see a lot of significant benefits and savings by around 2040. And really what a lot of what I worry about is the, a lot of the smart city initiatives are really throwing technology at people and hoping that they will do stuff because it's really hard to engage with a residential area or geographic area where people live. Because from a human factors perspective, that's almost something we're just really not that used to. Most of the user groups that we engage with as human factors professionals, one way or another, are fairly self-selecting. They're either product users or potential product users. And if they don't want to use the product, then, well, they're not going to use it. Obviously, we would try to develop products that more people would want to use, but we're not after 100% take-up necessarily. It's not really realistic. And if we're looking to engage with the workforce, well, technically, if you don't like the way something's going or tools don't work, people can leave that job and go and find another job. You know, at at the extreme case, it is is self-selecting in that respect. But when you live somewhere, the idea that you would up sticks and go somewhere else just because you're not, you don't like some te- technological innovation is possibly a harder concept to, uh, to grasp. And certainly as far as we are concerned in the human factors world, then really we should be looking at not 50, 60, 70% take-up. We're looking at 100% take-up. And so that, in, that involves the younger generations, the older generations, everything in between and around that. In case that we uh, commissioned some internal research... And we use this as as a medium to work with uh, with students 
um, as well as some of the work to, to look at some of the stuff that we were interested in internally. We had, had this idea of what, what we call Project Metis, which was a broader exploration into the values of human perception in the development of Internet of Things, smart cities, smart communities. And fundamentally, I wanted to look at the question of how attitudes will impact the development of smart cities and smart communities. It was very much a direction-finding piece of work, but some of the outcomes are really quite uh, quite interesting. As with any piece of research, we started looking at the literature. And there is a lot of literature out there now looking at the psychological effects of well-being, of digital well-being, but it really considers the young and old as separate entities rather than looking at more of a, a, of a continuum. The ability for it to compare and contrast generational differences is very limited. Therefore, there's we there's that deficit in looking at the research at digital well-being and particularly older generations. So fundamentally, we were then looking at well, what are we talking about? And really, there was two big things that that came to hit hit us, which was the, this concept of digital natives and the concept of digital immigrants. Now, the digital natives are around the age of sixteen to twenty-nine ish years old uh so they uh well i guess younger generational millennials but also we then looked at the this idea of a digital immigrant and they uh, kind of what we looked at was around 60 60 plus they're the older baby boomer generation it was really interesting to see these comparisons and certainly this idea about the digital native and digital immigrant now to understand these concepts further it's quite key to understand where the uh where the ideas come from so the digital native, as we, uh, the analogy here is clearly language. Uh, so people who understand diff- different languages. So if you are a native language speaker, uh, you've you've adopted that language as your mother tongue, and really the way it's the way you think as well. It's you you will think in your uh, native language, and because you think in that language, then when you uh, talk in that language, you process that that really really that that much quicker. And the same is true with the digital native side of things is the generations who are using your mobile data, they expect to use it and they they use it without even realising the depth of what they're doing. It's just natural for them to do it. It's what they've always done. They don't know any different. A digital immigrant, again, using that language analogy, is somebody who is like learning a foreign language. When you hear the foreign language, you tend to then translate it in your head to your... Um, to your native language, and then do the same in reverse to to communicate out. And so, again, a digital immigrant is somebody who was born before the internet was established uh, into mainstream use, and they've had to shift and adapt what they do to em- embrace uh, the digital life. That That's a really interesting concept. So the, the key benchmark here is really around 1982, which is where the millennials um, thing re- really comes into. So the this idea idea of the digital native they use the internet hourly or more generally they are the constantly connected generation um, digital immigrants certainly when you think about the age range that we're looking at they use it a few times a day but they're not constantly hanging on being connected looking into their phones all the time and that type of thing an interesting thing around this though is that the digital immigrant generation will watch a lot more TV. So this idea about having these the digital natives just constantly looking at, at screens on their phones and and tutting and doing that sort of thing. Well, there's an interesting comparison that actually a lot of these, a lot of the older people are watching a lot more television 
and almost getting that one-way communication, so they're, they're on constant receive. Maybe just looking at this idea of the moving screen is something a bit different. But also why they use the internet is, is different. So when we look at digital natives, they're looking for accessibility, they're, they're looking for knowledge. And the interesting in the way that the, the, the some theories about the way that the mind works, the brain works, and the brain is wired around digital natives, is around this idea of neuroplasticity, where that the, the the neurons are rewiring themselves, so they don't actually store the knowledge inside your brain in in the way that older generations would learn. So older generations generally learn learn facts and the data and the knowledge, and, re, and store that, whereas digital natives more store how to find that knowledge and where to find that knowledge. So it's a story more of the how, not the what. This is a fundamental restructuring of the brain, really, and, and how this works. Now, this is a bit of a theory at the moment. I don't think anybody's been chopped open enough to, in, in a way that can actually prove that this is the fact. But when you consider about how education seems to be changing um, or doesn't seem to be serving current generations of children... This could actually explain why, because the school system is still very focused on learning facts and, and that type of thing, rather than looking at the how we access data and, and that type of thing. It's a real interesting seeing what the natives are looking for, which is different to the immigrants, which is, the digital immigrants are more looking at, at it as a communication medium. They like using it to share photographs, share what what kind of what they're up to, to be able to talk to loved ones. So the idea that the older generation don't want to use the internet is is a fallacy. In fact, the whole silver surfer idea is 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 massive. They will uh, very much engage with the uh, with the internet, but they use it for a different thing. They don't they don't see it as the be all and end all. It is very much another aid. It's another communication medium that they can use, particularly for keeping in touch with friends and family. And how we access digital services is tremendously important. And we've got to get the two perceptions correct. Because if we are transitioning from everything to being online, so if you want council services, if you want to complain, if you want to find out more information, if you want to take part in a consultation, generally the first place you go and look is the the website of, of the appropriate either company or local authority, national government or, or petition site or whatever it is. But the way that we handle accessibility is quite key. When we look at signing up to websites and things, actually this is where the digital immigrants are happy to sign up to multiple times to different sites and they don't mind having multiple passwords. But they, are, they, they see it as a natural thing that, yes, if you go to a different site, you, you might need to sign up again. But digital natives get very frustrated. They get very frustrated about, oh, I'm having to sign in again. They are much more likely to have the same password, the same login details, the same uh, usernames. They will use things like Facebook login or Twitter login if that sort of thing is available. Um, Apple, in their latest release, is allowing the use of Apple ID as well to do that type of thing. And this is really targeting the digital natives who are getting frustrated at that type of thing. This is where the idea of password managers is really having to take a, a real boom in into this type of into this type of user because because we the the idea of having more more simplistic passwords just because we try and remember them then actually the password manager still allows us the ability to have strong passwords whilst not having to remember the complex passwords ourselves but when we're looking at paying for content again looking at this idea of accessing digital uh, services the digital natives expect more online to be free 
So they expect to get a, a bit of something free and then pay for more things. So when they're paying for games, uh, for apps, they'll expect, you know, they, they certainly don't mind a bit of advertising because it'll get them free access. But if they want to get rid of them, then they don't mind paying to get rid of the ads. If they're getting a certain amount of music, then like so maybe they expect some downloads for free before actually paying something. Whereas just immigrants expect to pay for what they use. So if you're turning around and saying, right, you're, you're using a certain service, you have to pay from the off. They, that's natural, that's expected. So again, it's just, it's nuanced to a certain extent, but there is a difference in attitudes in how they play out and how they access or how they want to access digital services. Then we look at the perception of safety. And it's interesting that digital immigrants feel safer than digital natives online. That could largely be because of a level of naivety to a certain extent, or the fact that digital natives have a greater appreciation that online is forever now. I mean, certainly, I know from my own perspective, that the the older digital natives, um, I, I slightly just fall outside that category, but only, I'd like to think only, only by a few years. There's a lot of st- stuff that when I started posting online onto like sort of Facebook and things like that, I didn't necessarily have that perception that online really means online in the same way that it does now. And having been involved in politics for quite a while, there's certainly this, this idea that uh, the stuff that you posted 10, however many years ago, actually does come back to come back to bite you in a way that never happened previously before um, or ne- never in the same way uh, pre- in, in, before the internet um, took off. So really that that is that's something that is a proper step change but also when our perception of uh, security when we're online everyone feels most vulnerable when when downloading stuff to their machine and when they're doing online banking which actually is quite surprising in some ways because the vast majority of online banking is is very safe because they've got they invest so much time in the online security you're much more vulnerable in that respect to phishing emails or spear phishing um, and that that type of thing. Um, but digital immigrants also feel insecure when they're you know they're doing the online dating because um, they see it they they sort of have perceptions about whether that the person at the end of the photo is actually a real person or is it just the computer streaming content and gaming. One of the really big interesting pieces is all people we spoke to consider every aspect of their lives to be private. Though they don't mind sharing certain aspects of their lives for, you know, such as pictures of important events, children's uh, graduations, marriages, that that type of thing. And really, it was actually it, they they've got a lot more fears about how this data, how their data online is going to be used. But another another interesting piece again, it's it's a perception piece about what they about where people felt better. So, all digital immigrants claim that they felt better about themselves in the real world. So when they wake up in the morning, the person they see in the mirror, that, that gives them the grounding and um, focus going on. But a third of digital natives claim they felt better about themselves in the online world. It's almost the the idea that the, the real world is, is just there because it has to be there. They, they actually live in the online world. And for those people who've maybe seen the, the film or read the book Ready Player One, it certainly lives into that idea of Halliday's Oasis, which I think is really, really quite, um, quite interesting. And certainly, from what we've seen, the emotional and social significance millennials attach to a virtual life is equal to their real life. They're, they really don't see a massive differential 
between real life and online life, which I, I can sort of equate to to some extent because just because we're using electronic means to communicate doesn't mean that what you're saying is any less meaningful. There is that idea that, that online and offline is blending a lot more than it, than it ever has done. But there's a lot more digital natives who are investing a lot more time, energy and money into their virtual surroundings. And the more they do this, they see it as their true place of residence rather than the, this physical shell that they inhibit. Really, one of the things we use online or uh, digital for is to make new friends. This is because the, the online world now acts as a massive relationship tool. Start new friendships, um, but also maintain old ones. This is where research by Age UK has really come in because the digital world can be a great tool for elderly individuals who feel isolated and lonely. And there's a lot of potential and um, possible, possible capability into combating loneliness, which is actually not just in older generations now, but in many generations, people who are living alone and that type of thing, that the loneliness is becoming such a huge problem that the digital gives us the ability or at least maybe some mechanisms to help counter it. There is a difference when we look at people's attitudes when we're looking at, at, looking at digital. So digital immigrants, um, again, the, the older generations, really utilise the digital world at its face value. They use it as that way to stay connected and in like-minded with, with, with like-minded other people. But digital na- uh, natives are often dissatisfied with their connectedness. They often feel frustrated at the service. Basically, they want to be connected as fast as possible all the time. If they get the equivalence of the, of the rotating hourglass, if they're not getting the photos through straight away, if they're not getting the connectivity that they used to, then they get frustrated at it because it goes back to this idea that they expect to be on all the time. And the more we provide faster services, then this feeds this, this connectedness. So until we get almost zero latency connect, connectivity, this will always be a factor. There's, there's certain elements around this about how we, how we embrace the digital world going forward, people's willingness to do so. Taking all of this into account, all of this idea that you've got digital natives, you've got uh, digital immigrants, and this, we, we'll have all of these people and variations of, and out with these as well, and so the people who just don't want to engage with the internet whatsoever, all living in a particular geographic location, this really gives us a difference in residence as a user group, as opposed to just users of a service. This idea that we can just do technology to people really is not going to work. We have to work uh, at trying to get engagement. And trying to get 100% engagement is difficult. It's not going to be a walk in the park thing to do. But the real value in this is if you don't get 100% engagement, then you not only have to do your digital work, but you're going to have to do all the old work as well. So you've got, you've got to put the effort in in order to get the, get the payback. Because fundamentally, if they don't like what you're doing, they're not going to do, they're not going to use it. You can't force people to engage, to engage like this. And this really brings us in the in sort of the, the the closing elements of this podcast into the diffusion of innovation theory model. So when you're introducing new technology, and um, we have this idea there's as an in, there's a diffusion of innovation model that says that people can be split up into five chunks, as it were. So you have innovators and early adopters, which is the first half the uh, first chunk of the curve. They're about sixteen percent of people ish fall into this category, and, and the idea is that they they're the ones who uh, really want to get get hold of technology as soon as it comes out, if not earlier. They're either the beta testers or they're the people lining up at the store trying to buy the newest bit of kit as it comes out. And so they're quite cool. However, they can cause a slight effect that if your kit, if your whatever you're deploying isn't good enough if it's still got bugs or it just feels a bit narky, that they not only buy the kit, but they tell everybody else what they think. 
And so they're really, really strong influencers because people listen to them. If they, if, if what you put out is too immature and not well tested enough, then you'll know about it. And not only will you ruin the project that you're trying to get out then, but you will also ruin future potential future projects, particularly because you have got such a bad review on what you're doing at the moment. But saying that we get past all that, then the vast majority of people fit into two camps of the early or late majority. Generally, that's where we want most people to be. But then you've got this bit at the end called what we call the laggards, and it's about 16% of people. These are the people either don't want to or just shall not embrace technology. They'll either only do it because they have to and they're forced to or there's really no other way around it, or they just don't want to because they're stubborn, they don't like it, and whatever reason. They're generally the possibly the most costly element when we're looking at this idea of smart cities and smart communities. Because if we don't get the laggards to take up the technology, that means that we have to put in systems alongside that or perhaps compensate people for not being able to use use the systems or whatever. But unless we can really push for as close to 100% take-up as possible, obviously acknowledging that we might not get there straight away, then how we deal with that and how we get people on board is absolutely key. There is an easy response to that in the short term, which is which is turn around and say, well, if digital natives is ever born kind of on or around 1980, 1982, why, why don't we just wait? Fundamentally, then all the digital immigrants will, in the nicest possible way, not be here. And so technology will just naturally, everybody will become digital. And this is this is a um, an interesting concept because actually we don't have that long to go in some respects. Because in 2040, today's 33-year-old will be in, only in their mid-50s. And today's person in their mid-50s will be in their sort of late 70s, early 80s. So that's not really that old in the grand scheme of things. Just because we've got the digital natives now, there was digital immigrants before, there's going to be something else coming up, which will be yet another step change. Again, you, 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 you've got the likes of Elon Musk actually wanting to do uh, to to connect to our brains directly, which as much as I'm a fan of Elon Musk, uh, that does scare me slightly. So what we've got to do is we've got to look at this idea about there's going to be transition. We can't assume by the time that smart cities arrive that everyone will automatically be on board. We need to transition in a way that has a range of ideas and a range a range of pathways for people to to go on and, and help them transition. Because if we don't engage with residents and i don't believe we are really we are still in that phase of we will do technology to people we're not going to get the maximum engagement and we're definitely not going to get the maximum benefit but if and this is not actually that big of an if because everything we're talking about is absolutely possible because if we fully understand the user and not just the technology we can nail this for uh for smart citizens smart communities and actually make them a real asset to our communities but it's fundamentally there's some broader implications it's evidence from from the research and from people what people have said that what they consider to be public and private is very individualistic but it's in what capacity and to who the public believe they're sharing the information is is absolutely key the public might not be so willing to share personal information if they're not if they're not being sold and used by third parties so we know that the likes of Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, all these, all these sort of assessment analysis companies, that we, we don't like it if people are profiteering out of our data and we feel ourselves almost violated in that sense. However, 
the, the general public is more willing to share personal information if it's understood that it's being gathered and housed for the development of society. So if there's a greater good out there that, that this information is being used for, then fine, actually. Most people are up for that. So that gives us really what, the final sort of three conclusions out of this, or three takeaways, which when we're developing with this, and it, it's almost the same with any human factors project to a certain extent, we've got to be open and upfront with the public about what their information is going to be used for in order to gain their trust because we want as wide a take-up as possible. A fundamental key, key around that is enabling the user to control their data, the volume of data that's held and the elements of data that, that it's held. But this should be easy for us. So this should be really good news because it's all about technology. We all know how to control techn technology and we know how to control data. For the development of IoT in smart cities, it, as long as we put that at the core of what we're doing, it should be really easy, but time will tell and we will see. So that brings us to the end of, of this podcast, and I hope it's at least given you something to think about uh, around how we uh, look at different generations of digital users. If you've enjoyed this, please please leave some feedback, please um, rate it. Please subscribe to the podcast through whatever medium you're listening through. If you've got any comments, please feed them back either through, the, uh, through Twitter, Facebook, or the website, or any other way that you can get it to me. But for now, I'll say thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at BAZ underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.